You are listening to Bodice Ripper, a private podcast for Jennifer Cruikshank by me, Jack Miller. This episode begins the reading of The Myth of America, a novel. The book you hold in your hands is a lightly edited version of a manuscript I discovered in the Everson family archive, penned by John Tyler Everson shortly before his death in July 1900. It remained buried there until now, its many astounding revelations unknown to the public. For those among you who know little or nothing about John Tyler Everson, I point you to Appendix 1, our author's biographical entry in the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, 1910-1911. Do not trust what you find on Wikipedia, or anywhere else on the internet, where the wildest conspiracy theories abound. While the belated publication of this book will undoubtedly spawn many new conspiracies, there's nothing out there yet that comes close to the truths re- revealed in these pages. Enjoy. Jack Miller, Boston, Oregon, July 2024. Preface. My father always told the story best. He would rise from the head of the table or his leather armchair, or if he were already standing with his back to a blazing fire, which he often was, simply raise his glass as though about to make a toast. The room would naturally fall silent. Franklin Everson commands a room like no man I have ever seen, and he would begin this way. We must all hang together, or we will surely hang separately. His stentorian voice made it sound like a proclamation, though it is actually a quote. He would let these words reverberate for a long moment, the hush of his chosen audience deepening with reverence at the great man's words. It must have seemed to them like deeply wise advice in their own trying times. For, whatever was happening out there in the world, there are always trying times to be had in the world my father inhabits. Those are the words of Dr. Benjamin Franklin, as you may know. People seldom knew, but would pretend otherwise. The wise and good-hearted Benjamin Franklin, martyred in the first American Revolution, familiar only among the most dedicatedly knowledgeable of patriots, a rare breed these days. Martyrs are generally remembered widely only until triumphant heroes of the cause rise to take their place, as happened in Dr. Franklin's case. But this, dear reader, I am sure you know quite well. My grandfather, George Waldo Everson, Franklin's own father, is of course one of the most well-known of those heroes who eclipsed the failed rebels of which Dr. Franklin was a colleague. I am named for him, you know, my father would add, as though this increased his own authority to quote the little-known man. He was speaking of the first American Revolution, of the dire need for solidarity, of the certainty that those first patriots, with the temerity to rise against the world's greatest military power of the time, were doomed to execution unless they took extraordinary measures to set aside their many differences and unite behind the cause of independence. My father would sip his claret before adding, almost offhandedly, his grim epitaph. They hung separately, of course. This is a matter of historical record. He would sip again and gaze upwards to the ornate ceiling. The ceiling is always ornate in rooms where my father holds court. Not for any reason of piety, but simply to allow time for those who had not heard this story to speculate about the direction he might be going, the point he might be making, to doubt the obviousness of their own commitment to national unity, to wonder if the great Franklin Everson, son of the father of the country, were about to dress down the assembled company for a failure of loyalty or some other real or imagined shortcoming. Even as a small boy, witnessing my father tell this familiar family legend, I could sense the fear and uncertainty in the room. It was, is, one of my father's many gifts, inspiring fear that one's weaknesses are obvious and about to be exposed. I have felt that fear many times myself. My grandfather, Voltaire Elias Everson, he would continue, who was a boy of nine at the time, witnessed one of the more spectacular group hangings. Franklin would look down then and scan his listeners slowly, 
assuring himself that their attention was fully wrapped, which of course it was. This man, tall, noble, self-assured, legendary in numerous ways, utterly intimidating to everyone who ever met him, his family included, this man had a story to tell, and there was clearly a moral to be derived from it. Utter silence but for the crackling of the fire, fear and wonder on every face. Philadelphia, January 1782, he would go on, his voice deepening, growing a measure quieter, his eyes sparkling as he conjured a faraway time and place, entrancing his audience in a way that only he among the nation's great diplomats seemed capable of doing. Though I rarely saw my father throughout my childhood, his visits to the family home in Boston were infrequent, brief, filled with meetings and occasions of state. It always made my heart race to watch him mesmerize a room of important men and their glitteringly appointed wives. General George Washington, Supreme Commander of the Continental Army, and 12 other patriots were put to death by the British that grim day, a public spectacle meant to cow the colonists into permanent submission. He would draw a deep breath, allowing the moment to prolong, a sadness darkening his brow, as though the hated British had actually succeeded in permanently cowing their rebellious American subjects. It was a snowy, freezing day, people's breath billowing in great anguish clouds of mist, the crowd restless but eerily quiet. A triple line of smartly uniformed redcoats stood at crisp attention in front of the gallows, muskets at the ready to impress and control the amassed onlookers. Behind the soldiers was a wide scaffold, the platform ten feet off the ground so those gathered could easily see the spectacle. Behind that stood the august facade of the Pennsylvania State House, where the Declaration of Independence had been signed a mere five and a half years earlier. All present knew that this shrine of the Revolution had become headquarters for the newly appointed Governor General of the United British Colonies of America, an office and an entity created by King George only months earlier to tighten British control over the rebellious regions so recently subdued. The desecration of our patriotic landmarks was a favorite hobby of the new British leadership. That morning's ritual of execution had been announced by the ringing of the old statehouse bell, which the patriots had called the Liberty Bell. Rumor had it this bell, an important symbol of the revolution, was soon to be melted down and recast into buttons for the British officers' uniforms. British cruelty was petty and deathless. The scaffold was vast, 20 yards wide, with 13 nooses dangling from a single thick beam of rough-hewn American pine, 55 feet in length, a menacing loop of woven American hemp for each rebellious colony, a patriot leader for each of the would-be states, hands bound behind his back, bareheaded and barefoot, clad in rags of faded patriotic blue. The great British Empire's worst traitors were to be executed one at a time, from left to right, so that the crowd could grow as cold of hope as they were growing cold of body on this sad and snowy January day. The remaining condemned men would be forced to watch their compatriots die in agony and ignominy, one after the other. Hang separately indeed. Governor General Lord Bradford was a man with a flair for the theater of cruelty. Another pause to sip his claret. I saw this performance a dozen times at minimum, but this was always the moment my arms would tingle. I stood in the cold of Philadelphia, faced by the indomitable might of British power, hoping for a clemency I knew from history would never be forthcoming. The prisoners were marched slowly to the gallows. General Washington, in the lead, lined up farthest to the right, the last to die by virtue of being supreme commander of the rebels' continental army, which the British, now that they had managed to win the war, derisively called the Ragged Blue Mob. They had not been so cavalier only two years earlier, when it looked like things would go the other way. But essential French support had been suppressed by British blockade. Russian aid had arrived too late. Dutch gold was interdicted by Spanish privateers. And the luck and pluck of state militias had run out in the face of overwhelming British military strength. 
There had also been, let us admit it, no small amount of waste, mismanagement, and downright incompetence in the prosecution of the war effort. And the population of the colonies at the time was perhaps not so overwhelmingly on the revolutionary side as they needed to be. They gave it a good try, though. That much must be admitted. No small endeavor to defeat the world's preeminent military powerhouse of the time. This was an uncharacteristically candid aside from my father, the most dyed-in-the-wool patriot one could ever meet. For him to admit a flaw in the American character was rare, practically unthinkable. But these were martyrs, remember, not genuine heroes. Defeated rebels, not triumphant revolutionaries. The real heroes of the American story were yet to rise. The Everson family prominent among those future leaders. So it did little harm, in my father's estimation, to cut the first generation of patriots down to size, so as more successfully to enlarge the reputation of those who would follow their failure with success. There was certainly no waste, mismanagement, or incompetence in the revolution won by his father, George Waldo Everson, and none in the great Democratic Party which he founded, and my father led for many years, and leads still. Certainly not, or at least no man or woman present would dare claim there were. I digress, he would say, as though his critical remarks were unintended, perhaps even a touch embarrassing. Forgive me. He would take another slow sip of claret, as though returning his mind to that long-ago day in snowy Philadelphia, his audience unconscious of the way their idol had implanted fear and doubt in their hearts with a simple digression. General Washington's arms were tightly bound as he was marched across the scaffold, but he held his head high, as though, my father always made sure to emphasize this, as though we actually won the war and he was walking to his coronation. The crowd allowed itself a brief gasp as the noose was fitted to their fallen hero's neck, and there was an audible murmur after he spoke his final words. Long live the American Revolution. A brief sip of claret and a glare at the audience to alert them to continue paying close attention to his words. A one-legged man leaning on a birch cane, a veteran of the war no doubt, leaned close into Voltaire's grandfather, Elias, who had brought the boy from the family home in central Pennsylvania to witness the spectacle. He whispered, He would have been the king of America if we'd prevailed. Voltaire looked at the man with curiosity, then up at his grandfather. We would have had no kings, my friend, Elias whispered back, perhaps a touch above a whisper. Elias was a brave man who wanted those around him to know he still held the rebels' democratic commitments strong in his heart. Democracy is our one true love, our God above all other gods. It will prevail someday, I assure you, sir. They can kill our leaders, but they cannot kill our spirit. He rested a paternal hand on his grandson's shoulder, gazed down at the boy. It falls to you and your generation to honor our God and bring these American states to independence, he said. My father would down the rest of his claret then, and often, not always, he would smash the glass on the floor. And that is exactly what they did, God bless them, and God bless America. <laughs>